We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, but how often do we stop scrolling and just listen? I'm Malika Bilal, and starting May 1st, The Take will be a daily news podcast, bringing you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Al Jazeera Podcast. European leaders have pledged to turn the North Sea into a renewable power engine, and they want to cut the use of fossil fuels and reliance on Russian gas. The plan is radical and costly, but will it work? And where will the money come from? I'm Imran Khan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. And let's bring in our guests now. In Stromness in the Orkney Islands, Scotland, Gareth Davis, founder of Aquaterra, an environmental and sustainable energy consultancy. His company is involved in the planning of future marine offshore renewables across Europe. In Brussels, Sandrine Dixon Declerve, co-president of the Club of Rome, a climate policy advisory. Sandrine is also the EU ambassador of the Energy Transition Commission. And in London, Noah Brennan, Eastern Hemisphere Editorial Director for Energy Intelligence. Noah specializes in European oil and gas companies. A warm welcome to each of you. Before we get into the politics of this, let's get into the tech. And I want to begin uh, in the Orkney Islands with uh, Gareth Davis. Gareth, as far as I understand this as a layperson, what effectively is going to happen is you're going to interconnect a bunch of wind farms and harness wave energy, and somehow that will replace Russia's gas for a whole continent. I mean, is that about the sum of it? Unfortunately, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and I think that's the challenge is that it, this isn't a simple solution. It is, in our view, an achievable solution, but it needs a lot of different parts put together. Um, so what is really important is to have the, the policy or the strategy lead, if you like, and to understand that there's the political will to make these things happen. And then we need to then go to the next level down and get the strategy in place to deliver uh, the investment and the infrastructure uh, that's needed. And indeed, that some of the technology advances that are going to make this possible. Um, but there's a lot of progress that's been made in the last uh, few decades. And, you know, this is the right time probably to, to launch an initiative of this type. But let's talk about that tech, Gareth. I mean, you, you say that the technology has come on in leaps and bounds over the last couple of decades, but it's not quite there yet. Is that what I'm understanding? Well, what we've done um, really is made huge, huge advances in wind and, and actually something that hasn't been mentioned yet uh, this week, solar energy, but this could also be something that's part of the mix. But certainly offshore wind has, I think, exceeded everybody's expectations in terms of how much we've been able to deliver and at what price. Um, what the next step entails is going into deeper waters and going to windier parts of the waters around Europe. So bringing the turbines up around Scotland and, and where we're based up in the islands off the north of Scotland, this is probably going to be the next focus. And in fact, there are now plans being prepared for 28 gigawatts of new offshore wind around Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles. And, and these turbines, as well as being the traditional founded turbines buried into the seabed, we're mm. also looking at extensive floating turbines, which uh, have started to be introduced. But the expansion of that is a major advance for the industry. And now let me bring in Brussels here and Sandrine Dixon-Declerve. Sandrine, once again, this isn't about 
the environment. This isn't about climate change. This isn't about anything. This is about politics and Russia and the war in Ukraine affecting gas prices and gas supply. So it's once again politics that's driving something that actually we should have been doing a long time ago, right? Well, I think it's a mix of everything, to be frank. I mean, yes, absolutely, the Ukrainian invasion has put actually the transition to renewables and energy efficiency, I hope, which is also part of the mix, by the way, and we can't forget that we have to think about consumption. All of this is being put on overdrive because we want to wean ourselves off Russian gas. And actually, over the last year, we've done phenomenally well in transitioning. The key here now is making sure that we scale it up to the level that it has to go. And, and that means actually increasing, for example, the wind turbine production capacity by two times by 2030. Um, it means bottom fixed foundations capacity four times and installation vessel capacity two times. I mean, this is a, a lot of shift in particular, for example, in offshore wind. But as was indicated by the previous speaker, we also need to think about coupling that with investments across uh, solar and then think through around energy efficiency. And we know that clean electrification is the backbone of the transition to net zero. And we know that we need to radically, dramatically increase actually investments in wind and solar capacity by about five to seven times by 2030. I, I think the key now is to think through how do we get there? One, eliminate the perversities in the market that currently exists that don't enable us to actually invest and shift capital towards renewables infrastructure. Uh, two, to make sure that we actually put in place the right funds and we're starting to see that this is coming out of the European Union in terms of the temporary crisis and transition framework and the thinking through of the new EU sovereignty fund. And, and then three, very importantly, how do we ensure that actually people understand that this is a potential solution to energy poverty, that we start to show that renewable electrons can be at parity with mm. gas prices and that we don't actually induce even greater energy of poverty across the European Union based on what we're actually seeing now. Uh, I want to bring Noah Brenner in here. Noah, there is a danger here that if we're doing this because of the Russia of Russia's actions in Ukraine to try and wean ourselves off a Russian gas in Europe, then that's not the driver that needs to be because Russia is not going to be in war in Ukraine for a long time. You know, at some point, it's, the gas is going to come back on. There is another. There's Nord Stream 1, there's Nord Stream 2, which isn't back online yet. Effectively... Russian gas will be cheaper, and this is a massive investment. And there's a danger here. If we're doing it for money, not for the environment, it will simply just go away once Russian gas is cheaper and we're all friends again. Well, I mean, I think I would be a little bit care careful about thinking that that Russian gas is simply going to return, even should we see some sort of um, pause or, or, or some potential long-term resolution with the Ukraine conflict. I mean, the companies that we talk to, the traders that we talk to, all of them have a, a pretty cautious view. And then I would say the diplomats that we talk to as well have a pretty cautious view, a pretty um, pessimistic view that Europe really ever returns to, to Russian gas. I mean, this is both from a, you know, if you think of it from a geopolitical perspective, but I mean, also simply from a security of supply perspective, um, this is an energy source that has kind of been choked and throttled um, at very strategic times uh, to create some of the really the highest gas and power prices that the European continent has seen. 
And so I think, you know, what does make this much more likely to move ahead? I mean, what gives the impetus and the urgency is simply that it is not simply an environmental uh, push that's driving this forward. It is an energy security push. And for a continent like Europe that really doesn't have a lot of domestic resource potential when it comes to especially oil and gas, of course, um, this is what energy security looks like. Uh, Gareth, clearly the momentum is now on the side of this. People do want to get uh, this going, but it's going to cost billions in investment. It's going to require a buy-in from the energy companies. The energy companies have already said, we don't have the money for the infrastructure here. Where is that money going to come from? Well, in the end, um, all of our energy system money comes from us, the customers that pay for that energy. The, the question is... Um, about investment and, and how much upfront investment happens rather than things getting drip fed into the, the system. And we've been doing some analysis which looks at how much we spend as a society at the moment, year on year, on energy, and, um, and then compare it with the kind of investments that we're looking at. And from our calculations, it suggests that in Europe at the moment, we're probably spending around £500 billion a year across Europe on our energy sources. Um, and the investment that we're talking about, say for um, 300 gigawatts um, of energy would perhaps be um, around uh, 600 uh, billion to a trillion pounds. So effectively what we're saying is each year we spend about 50% of what we actually need to make that kind of investment. So over the next 20 years, which is, you know, we've got 20 years to do this, you know, if effectively we have the time to make the investment from the, the, the cost that we're already incurring for our energy system. What has to happen is instead of us paying that money into the existing oil and gas and to a certain extent coal um, pathways, we need to redirect that uh, revenue into renewables. And that's what the carbon transition is all about. Uh, Sandrine, that's an eye-watering figure, Half, uh, $500 billion to a trillion in investment just to get this up and running. Gas is always going to be cheaper. At some point, there's going to be a wobble, surely. People aren't going to want to spend this money. But this is exactly what I'm saying. I mean, I think that we need to bring back into consideration the fact that actually gas is increasingly going to be costly that we can't continue to move down that route, that we have to take perversities out of the market to enable actually those renewable electrons to be cheaper. Yes, we are investing, but a lot of that capital is shifting from investors that are de-risking and seeing that actually renewables are the way forward and are actually the type of energy that we want to think about. I mean, in the current international context, if you look at energy security and the work that I'm also doing on the board of EDP, which is the electricity company for Portugal, uh, it's very clear that they have diversified. They're pulling out of coal. In fact, they will be out of coal already by uh, 2025 and fully green by 2030. There are many companies, electricity companies across Europe that are doing the same thing. They've put in place just transition plans to come out of coal plants and actually have already done so, for example, in EDP's case and CINES. And what they're thinking is that the investment makes sense in floating offshore wind energy, uh, the way in which they're addressing renewables in a variety of different countries, including in the United States, in Latin America and elsewhere. So this is also creating a competitive European industry, not only in terms of electricity companies themselves, but through the full supply chain and industry opportunities. 
I mean, besides actually delivering the clean energy, offshore wind energy impact is the creation of new supply chain opportunities also in the area of solar. And this is helping industrial companies. It's creating new jobs. And it's exactly what President von der Leyen has been calling for through the new Green Deal. So I think this is the industrial and the energy revolution that's really really going to transform Europe, we have to stay ahead of the game. Otherwise, we're going to lose out to China and to the United States, who's put in place, actually, the Inflation Reduction Act and is moving very quickly in this direction. Uh, Noah, where does this leave the traditional oil and gas companies? They must be looking at this tech and they must be worried. Well, I mean, for the European majors, uh, you know, the companies like a, a BP, a Total Energies, the Shell, um, I mean, this particular, particularly offshore wind, but renewable power um, in general is, is a major pillar of their energy transition strategy. Uh, this is different from their U.S. peers, but I mean, this offshore wind is an area where these companies feel that they can bring competitive advantage around management of supply chain, engineering, uh, working in these complex offshore environments. But, um, you know, I think it's also really important, as we point out, that this is an industry that, um, you know, has opportunities globally, uh, whether it's in the U.S., where they do have the Inflation Reduction Act, or in parts of Latin America. You know, there's an opportunity set there that they can choose where the best returns are. They can try to understand where the best regulatory environments uh, are, where there are incentives, where there is financial capacity uh, to be able to partner, whether it's with, you know, financial firms or, or with governments. And so I think the idea that Europe really needs to get this right um, to be able to attract the amount of investment, attract the expertise, the capacity that it needs to realize these uh, very, very ambitious plans um, is critical. Uh, simply saying that this is the goal that we have and then, you know, finding ways to incentivize it and to realize it in a, in a way that's cost effective and, and comes through on time and on budget. Um, it's, it's a very, very difficult undertaking. I don't think we should um, should kid ourselves that, that getting this right is both important and and will be a challenge. Gareth, that's an important word, isn't it? Ambitious. We, we keep hearing that a lot. Um, I just want to give you an example. 20 years ago, it felt like that we were talking about solar energy being the future, solar energy being something that was going to radically change everything. Yet here we are 20 years later, we're still relying on fossil fuels, we're still relying on electricity, and that hasn't quite materialised in the way that it should. Why will this? It's, it's a number of factors. I think, you know, we, we have to recognise that the incumbent forces in our political and economic systems have been, you know, to the fore in the last 20 years, and that's held back the, the deployment of technology. But um, as one of the other contributors said, the, the, res, the, the facts now are that uh, wind and indeed even offshore wind, as well as solar, are actually going to be our cheapest energy sources going forward. Um, and that's the to address your question about Russian gas. It's very unlikely that Russian gas will ever reach prices that actually undercut where renewables are going to get to in the next few years. So renewables will be our cheapest form of energy. It is a question then of mobilizing the supply chains and creating the infrastructure to take that forward. And there are particularly particular countries, particular communities that have been incredibly ambitious to get involved in that. And, and I think you know the Orkney Islands, where I'm speaking to you from, are exactly one of those places where as a small community, we've embraced the opportunities that renewables can create. And we've now got you know, 400 people, we've got 20 or so companies 
in our small community that are focused on renewables. And you know, those companies are really interested now in getting involved in this huge revolution that we're talking about with regards to offshore wind and helping deliver it um, at an affordable price and in an accelerated way where we use the learning that we've established over the last 20 years or so. Now, Sandrine, we are talking about the North Sea now. That is a big, significant challenge. Like, I mean, that has got to make, that has got to give you pause, surely. Yeah, no, clearly it is a challenge, but I think that there are many countries that are ready for that challenge. And if you look at the Ostan Declaration, for example, that is looking at uh, the North Sea challenge in particular, those are the countries of Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, France and Ireland, Luxembourg, Norway, and the United Kingdom have all wanted to already start to invest very clearly in offshore wind. I think the key here, though, is that in some ways we're seeing that offshore wind farms can get to commercial scale in Europe uh, by three years. But in many cases, we're seeing that there is a real problem in terms of lag times on permitting. So coming back to how do we scale this up? How do we really start to ensure that we get the infrastructure where it needs to be in the transmission lines as well? I mean, let's not spot, speak about some of the politics that we're seeing um, across different countries. But if we continue to bring those time lags down, then we will see that the development of the projects can go much faster. And I'm a bit worried about these time lags. And actually, this is a large scale report that was undertaken by uh, ETC, the Energy Transition Commission, and which we're speaking about now to officials to say that we absolutely have to reduce permitting times and that construction really can take two to three years, but these permitting times of up to 10 to 12 years is gonna kill the industry if it continues that way. We also need to think through, however, how we can continue to be very firm and vigilant around environmental impact assessments, but by the same token, enable some of these projects to get through, making sure that we are still preserving our biodiversity and our pollution laws the way in which we should. So it's finding that balancing act, but it's also making the, the scale ready now and thinking through the permitting. If we compare to the United States where the permitting times are so much swifter, we're gonna lose out if we don't start to think about this very clearly. Uh, Noah, Sandrine makes a point I wanted to ask you about, which is one of permitting, which is one of getting all of these countries together and making sure that they're in lockstep and effectively actually starting to build this technology. Now. Europe doesn't have a great track record when it comes to doing this. No, and I mean, I, the permitting issue is huge. I think if you talk to companies um, that are trying to advance these types of projects globally, what they come back to time and again is permitting. What's what, you know, how quickly can they get from an idea and getting the license that they need to moving through all the approvals? And let's be honest, I mean, these are, sure, from a climate perspective, um, wind installations, renewable power installations are, are great. Um, but we are seeing, whether it's here in the UK, whether it's um, in the US, other places in Europe, pushback against putting these, these and these are industrial scale power facilities, putting these in places. And I, I think this is one reason why it has to be offshore wind. I mean, why, you know, uh, 
the head of BP's gas and renewables division was saying, you know, offshore wind is, it has to go offshore. There just simply isn't enough land for it. But I mean, there are still going to be constituencies and trade-offs to balance out there, whether it's uh, fishing industries, whether it's environmental. And I think how um, politicians uh, navigate that balance and how they find a way to move ahead with these projects in a way that, um, you know, time is money. And, and if they aren't move, moved forward in a way that, um, that preserves that rate of return for companies, uh, it's not going to work. And I think the same thing can be just said about industrial capacity. I mean, it, building in the North Sea mm. is difficult, but the oil and gas industry has been doing it for years. But we've also seen that when everybody tries to do the same thing in the same place at the same time, that the cost of labor, the cost of materials, um, the cost to build things goes up and it can go up quite rapidly. And that can erode your rate of return as well. And so, you know, I think that these are two very difficult challenges. They, they certainly can be solved. Um, but, you know, those are two things that I would be keeping an eye on in terms of how much of this, um, this goal actually gets delivered. Well, we're lucky enough to be joined by uh, someone who is from one of the companies that might be involved in doing this, Gareth Davis. You run Aquaterra, an environmental and sustainable energy consultancy. There is an awful lot of red tape to get through. Europe isn't great at red tape. Could this scupper your big, ambitious plans? Well, I, I think we're all engaged in a plan that actually it's not any one person's plan. The world needs decarbonised energy. I mean, that's a fact. It's well established. It's our biggest priority. Um, and so getting people behind that is absolutely important. I think one nuance I would make is that, you know, the headline discussion is about that we're going to do this in the North Sea. The reality is that the best wind resources in Europe are at the northern end of the North Sea and, and to the west of, of Scotland and Ireland. And it would be very surprising if this focus on productivity didn't take the developments to those places. Um, and I think in doing so, that will avoid some of the more acute planning challenges which exist because the North Sea is the busiest and, and the most uh, heavily used and has some of the most valued natural communities. Um, and so there might be a little bit more space in some of these more northern and western areas for these developments to take place. But the, the appropriate planning and, and choosing the right places for these uh, wind farms and other forms of technology will be absolutely critical. And, and as will the fact that we need to spread them out across the north-south line, if you like, of Europe, because, because our weather systems go east-west Generally sorry, sorry, Gareth, uh, we, are running out, we are running out of time and I do want to come quickly to Sandrine. Sandrine, uh, we've talked a lot about the politics, we've talked about the finance, we've talked about the tech. Um, are you talking to environmentalists and scientists about this? Are, are there any concerns here from those lobbies? Listen, I think that um, clearly environmentalists, exactly as was just said, all believe, we all feel that it is time now to put in place a proper net zero carbon plan to move towards renewable energy. Where we need to be cognizant is, first of all, how can we scale up existing technology and not just think about breakthrough technologies? So how can we think through what we have now to scale it up? Secondly, what many environmentalists are saying is, please let's not forget, and I say the same, demand side management. Let's not just focus on what's bright and what we think is new and instead look at consumption. We can do a huge amount if we reduce our consumption of energy. And then the last point, and I do think this is something that we're all thinking about, and that is what will be our material dependencies. We absolutely have to reduce the use of fossil energy to zero 
We know that that's absolutely fundamental, but we also need to think through our dependencies and our substitution towards material use in rare earths. And I think that is one key concern that comes up, but that doesn't mean that we should not pull out of fossil energy. I think environmentalists across the globe are very clear, as are analysts and scientists, that we have to focus primarily on weaning ourselves off fossil energy, and that must be done now. I want to thank all our guests, uh, Gareth Davis, Sandrine dixon Declave, and Noah Brennan. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Alexandra Bias, Fong Yenguin, and Jimmy Getahan. Studio Sound was by Sentel Marimutu. The program was edited by Mohamed Sobi, Ling Enguin, and Joe Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Thank you.